0: just turn it on this morning as I mentioned last week we are going to be in Matthew 16 what prompted my thinking about Matthew 16 we're obviously done with if you weren't here last week we're obviously done with Amos if you missed last week I'd encourage you to uh, uh, hop online and when it's on it is is there now it is there now so hop online and you can listen to Amos chapter 9. In any case, the reason why I was prompted to go to Matthew 16 this week, I said we're going to have three or four or five messages that are going to be um, not a series, just things I've wanted to preach on for a while. Uh, the message this morning was prompted by uh, Andrew's confession two weeks ago. He uh Kind of rocked my thinking in what he presented in Matthew 16. So you can feel free if you haven't yet turned so done so, turn to Matthew 16. Next week, no, I'm sorry, two weeks from now, Rusty will be preaching. So I'll be on next week, and then three weeks from now. Have you decided yet what you're going to preach on two weeks? Yes. Yeah. In general. Yeah, preparing for Any specific text yet? David and the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the text? Two or, two or three different texts. Okay, so you can have fun exploring that topic. David and the Ark of the Covenant. In any case, so Matthew 16 has been rattling around in my brain now for several weeks, and um, I want to, it's not a disagreement with Andrew, it's just an expansion um, on what Andrew talked about in his confession. So if you don't remember the confession, we'll review that as well as we get into the text. It'll come out of the study, but before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we consider your text and consider what you have to say here in Matthew that we will be reminded of the truth, that we will be reminded of what is central, what is important, that we will be reminded of um, who you are and who we are. And Lord, I pray that by your Spirit we will respond to your truth and we will worship you and be changed by the power of your Spirit at work in us and that we will, as a result, revel in and glory in you and recognize the, the bankruptcy of reveling in or glorying in other things. So help us. Your name, I pray. Amen. Can I ask you a quick question? Do you ever find yourself, Matthew, we're in uh, Matthew, we're in Matthew 16. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself realizing you sinned? Now, I know the answer to that question is obvious, right? We all know the answer to that one, but that's not my question. But do you you ever find yourself, when you realize you committed sin, you found yourself in sin, do you ever find yourself asking yourself the question, why did I do that? Why am I there? Sometimes we have answers for that, and sometimes we don't, right? Could I submit to you in light of our study this morning, Almost inevitably, our answers are probably not correct. If we have answers to that question, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why am I saying that? Why am I um, uh, thinking that? Our answers are almost inevitably not correct, and oftentimes we don't even have answers for it. It's one of the things I find oftentimes in my counseling when I probe why people brought me, brought that, why people came in to see me. I'll start talking to them and I'll start asking them questions. And one of the things that are very clear is when I start asking about why they did what they did or said what they said or were thinking what they're thinking, the answer almost inevitably is, what do you think? Oh. That's what it usually is. And often ends with the shrug of the shoulders. Oh. They just don't know. Which I always submit to the people who say that to me, that's doubly troubling. That's incredibly discouraging to me. Because I think that, does the Scriptures call us to repent when we sin? That's really clear. Can I ask you this quick question? Do the Scriptures call us to change when we find ourselves in sin? How do you change if you don't know where it came from? Or why it happened? I mean, ultimately, how what, what kind of change can you have? My engine blew up. Why? I don't know. What do you think the chances are of another engine blowing up? Especially because most blow-up engines are blown up because of one reason. What is it? No oil. So if you don't know why your engine blew up, what's the chance of you having another blown-up engine? It's really high. I had a friend who bought a brand-new Vega. That was his first mistake. Chevy Vega. He drove it 50,000 miles and the engine blew up. Mechanic told him, your engine blew up. and He said, why? The mechanic said, there was no oil in it. He said, what do you mean? He said, when was the last time you checked your oil? And he said, check my oil? He said, "Where did you ever change your oil? He said, change my oil he didn't know he didn't know he didn't learn because he bought a chevette afterwards and did the same thing Of course it was double whammy buying a chevette whole nother issue it's just an interesting scenario we we understand very clearly that there's some questions you need to be asking right Your engine blows up in the same way there's questions that ought to be asked When our lives blow up. Does that make sense? So the question is an obvious one. Why? How did I get here? Why did this happen? Why did I do this? Why did I say this? Why did I think these things? Why did I sin? Very important. I would present to you the text we're going to look at this morning answers the questions in dramatic, powerful, and encouraging ways. Convicting ways, too, though. We're going to read chapter 16, starting in verse 13, and we're going to read through chapter 17, verse 13, and then we're going to jump from there after we study that text and we're going to jump somewhere else, a couple other places in Matthew to fill out the picture, if if you follow me on that. So starting in chapter 16, verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, and the scribes and be killed on the third day, be, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus then told his disciples, If anyone Truly I say to you, you are standing, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, so we got six days later, chapter 17, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And He will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize Him, but did to Him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And we're going to stop there at this point. We're going to jump further into the book of Matthew in in maybe 20 or 30 minutes. Going back to the text, it's an interesting text. It's been known for... Many millenn- at least uh, two millennia as, as Peter's confession of Christ. And rightfully so. And that's what the confession was about two weeks ago. So Jesus and the disciples are together in verse 13 through 20. Jesus asks, the, by the way, we're not going to by necessity hit every point in this text. It's impossible. Uh, we're going to highlight a few important points that I want to, Uh, point out to you. Jesus first asks the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And of course the answer is, some say you're John the Baptist, which obviously means resurrected from the dead, John the Baptist. Um, Others say you're Elijah, again resurrected from the dead, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or um, one of of, of the prophets, again risen from the dead. In all those categories, risen from the dead. Jesus doesn't really care what their answer is, right? In fact, I would submit to you, he kind of expects their answer from that. Because that's the world's way of thinking. That's the unsaved people's way of thinking. They're not connecting the dots, in other words, to what the Scriptures say, or who the Scriptures say Jesus is. But Jesus, is his main point in this text is to turn to the disciples and say, Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter, replies, it says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ, of course, means Messiah. So Peter here in verse 16 declares unequivocally, you are, and I want you to notice, you are, definite article, the Messiah. The Christ. Exclusive. You are the sent one from heaven to redeem God's chosen people. You get that? Simon Peter declares unequivocally, unashamedly, that Jesus is the Christ. It's really important. Nothing really I need to say about the text. We get that. He goes on though and says, the Son of the living God, which is another way of declaring that He is Deity. So He's declaring He's the Messiah. He's also declaring at the same time that He is Deity. Jesus turns to Peter exclusively. And He says to Peter, so that's Peter's confession. We've heard that before. We've heard it many times. Andrew spoke on that in the confession two weeks ago. Peter confesses Christ as the, definite article, exclusive Messiah, Redeemer, Rescuer of God's chosen people. And He is the Son of God. He is Deity. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but My Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're going to stop at the end of verse 18. One thing I want to point out before we get into the main point I want to make in verse 17 and 18, I want you to notice something very important. In verse 17, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but My Father who is in heaven. That passage, that statement is very, very important. The only way anyone comes to an understanding, a true understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only way anyone comes to that understanding is how, according to the text? It's revealed to him. Flesh and blood does not, but who reveals it? What does it say? What does it say, Charles? My Father who is in heaven reveals this to you. This truth is spiritually discerned, it is not anything that can be conjured up in the heart of man. Why? I mean, you'd think that someone could just read, read the scriptures and figure it out, right? Wouldn't that make sense? You just read the Scriptures. If you read enough, you you could reject or, or accept them, but you could say, yeah, it, it's pretty clear in the Scriptures that He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Except for there's one problem. The text here doesn't talk about it. But the one problem is what? If It's, it's spoke, spoken in many texts, but nowhere more clearly spoken than in Romans chapter 1. Man's natural condition, in man's natural condition, what does he do with the truth? He suppresses it all the time in unrighteousness. He is continually suppressing it in unrighteousness. The only way that that ceases to happen is according to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which means we can't help but suppress the truth in righteousness. It's just the automatic, forever thing. But then the Scriptures go on and says, but He made us alive. And then, by grace through faith we were saved. Does that make sense so far? So the only way in which someone could ever... Come to this unequivocal declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by the way, I'm not talking about the words. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? You can walk out and and say, hey, listen, bud, uh, pagan guy out here in the street, I'll give you 40 bucks if you will say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they'll do what? They'll say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for your 40 bucks. It's not like they'll, they'll say, sure, and then they'll, yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not what the text is talking about. What the text is talking about, when, when Jesus says that to Peter, he's talking about something from within. There's a belief system here in this. Does that make sense? Peter's not merely saying words, because what does what does... Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Which is another way of saying what? Who do you believe that I am? That's the point. Who do you believe that I am? Peter is declaring, because it's been revealed from heaven, from the Father, he's declaring what he believes. What he believes is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very important distinction there. What's interesting is we've looked at this text. I've looked at it this way all my life. And this is what really started my thinking is two weeks ago when Andrew uh, used the text as, a, as the confession. And it started when he said, it never clicked with me before, when he said, we're looking at Peter's confession. Remember? Remember? We're going to look in the confession this morning at Peter's confession of Christ. And he basically covered what we just talked about. But what struck me is verse 17 and 18. This is not merely a singular confession. Peter confessing Christ. It is a dual confession. Jesus is confessing, if you want to use the term, He's confessing Peter as well. That doesn't mean I'm Catholic. Just want to clarify that. The point is, Jesus, Peter, when he confesses Christ, what that means is he declares what he believes about Christ. Make sense? Jesus confesses Peter. And in Jesus' confession of Peter, he's doing the same thing. He's declaring what he believes about Peter. He's declaring what's true. In other words, just like Peter declared what is true about Jesus, Jesus is declaring what is true about Peter. It's a dual confession. It's not a singular confession. It's a true confession. I mean, sorry, it's a double confession. And both are true. What does He say in the second confession? That is, what does Jesus say about Peter? And I would submit if we miss this part, we miss the true value of Peter's confession of Jesus. Because in Jesus' confession of Peter, it starts out in verse 17 and concludes in verse 18. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, what? Simon Barjona. This is the intro to Jesus' confession of Peter. And it's intriguing. Peter, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Son of the living God. Jesus says, you are what? You are who? Simon. Where does Simon come from? That was his original name, wasn't it? Before Jesus gave him the name Peter. He says, you are Simon... Bar-Jonah. Bar means, guess what? Son of Jonah. Now that's not Jonah in the Old Testament. His dad's name was Jonah. Peter just said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Son of, or Bar, living God. Follow me? Bar, living God. Jesus, or Jesus says, you're Simon. Bar, Jonah. Son of Jonah. That's a pretty stunning contrast, isn't it? Is that a stunning contrast? That's an amazing contrast. Jesus is son of who? Living God. Eternal God. Sovereign God. Holy God, eternal God, all-powerful God, all-knowing God. we can go on with that, can't we? Peter, or Simon, Bar-Jonah, your son of finite, your son of man, son of a man. Who may very well be dead by now. At minimum, he's getting old. He's probably frail, maybe even dead. You're son of a sinner. But most importantly, you're son of someone who desperately needs what? The Messiah. You are not like me, Jesus is saying. You're not like me. My confession of you, Peter, at this point is you're not me. You'll notice the the Peter's confession of Jesus is what? You are Christ. That whole concept is missing in this one, isn't it? It's just you're signed by Barjona. That's all you are. See, flesh and blood for Peter towards Jesus would would cause him to say, you're Jesus. Wouldn't it? You're Jesus bar Joseph. That would be what flesh and blood would say, wouldn't it? And elsewhere in in the Gospels, that's exactly what people talk about him as. He's the son of a carpenter. Bar carpenter. That's what they're saying. But instead... This, the, the, the heavenly perspective and the, the perspective that Peter has is Messiah. Christ. But Peter, Jonah. Verse 18, he shifts from Simon to what he called him. And I tell you, you are Peter And once again, that's all he calls him. Right? Before it was Simon, son of Jonah. And here he says, you're Peter. Now, the whole point of him changing from Simon to Peter originally was to establish a new direction in his life. There's a disconnect now from who? Who? From, P, from from Jonah, right? When he changes his name to Peter in a very real way, there's a disconnect from Jonah. Because there's a new connect. Why? Because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Jonah didn't reveal it to you. Your father didn't reveal it to you. Instead, your father in heaven has revealed it to you. Bar Jonah has not. Jonah did not. And I tell you, you are Peter. Is that It's interesting the way he words that. I tell you, you're Peter. Peter, just a few seconds earlier, said, I tell you, in effect, you are the Christ. I tell you, you're Peter. What's that all about? Simon Barjona, you're Simon Barjona. You're Peter. What's that all about? What, what's going on in this dual confession? New identity, yes, but more importantly, what's really going on in this, in this dual confession confession is this in effect what jesus is saying to peter is this peter what you confessed is true and the only way you could know that is because the father my father is in heaven who has revealed that to you it is spiritually discerned It is spiritually revealed it has obviously been revealed to you but there's one more thing i got to add to that and he has every right to do so right Because he's who? He's God, right? And so, in effect, when Jesus gives his confession of Peter, here's what he's saying. What it was revealed to you from heaven is this I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. What you need to understand is this amazing contrast. You're not. That's the point of the dual confession. Peter, you're not. Could I just submit to you real quickly? This is the problem of humanity from the beginning since the fall. The problem of humanity since the fall. So we think we can redeem ourselves. We think we can rescue ourselves. You see it over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, what is the big way which people think they can redeem themselves? Sacrifices and bigger picture, what were we gonna say? Follow the law. Isn't that what they're doing all the time? Trying desperately hard to sacrifice and follow the law? What's that all about? Self redemption. You study the law, and one of the things that become abundantly clear if you study the law, if you're spiritually discerning at all, is you know that one of the things that is absolutely true, even if you don't even look in the New Testament, what the New Testament declares, is that the Old Testament law is something that no one could ever follow. It was never intended to be the thing you follow. It was the thing that was supposed to reveal to you that you needed a Savior, a Redeemer. But all through the Old Testament, what were people doing? Trying to self-redeem. Can I make it a little more subtle than that? You realize how much we try to self-redeem all the time? We do it all the time. How do we do it? It's really quite obvious when you start to think about it. When we start to say, well, this will satisfy, that will will make me happy, This this will bring me joy, all those other kind of This will complete me, this, that, something else. All that is is self redemption. Because those are things I can do, right? Those are all things I can do. And they're all self redemption. If only I blank, self redemption. If only I could save enough money, then I'll be happy, self redemption. If only I could go on this vacation, self-redemption. If only this, only that, only It's all self-redemption. Of course, we know, don't we, that it doesn't deal with sin. But we just conveniently ignore that fact and think that somehow I could be satisfied apart from sin being dealt with. Somehow I can be satisfied apart from that. That's classic self-redemption. What... Jesus is declaring in His confession about Peter, regarding Peter, is this. Peter, you are absolutely correct. You are absolutely correct that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and don't you dare ever forget it. So, helping you not to ever forget it is what? You're Simon Barjona. You're Peter. It's a jarring confession. Don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever have grandiose ideas that you're someone you're not. You are forever a needy person. You are forever a hopeless person apart from the Redeemer. You are forever failed apart from a Redeemer. You will never, ever measure up. If that's true, it kind of makes sense to find ourselves rejoicing in the Messiah, doesn't it? If I'm hopeless, if I'm merely Steve, to use the term, Steve bar James, my father, that's what I am. And that's all I am, apart from the Messiah, correct? My father was born in sin, I was born in sin, Andrew and Laura were born in sin. Emma, born in sin. It's always going to be the case, the sight of glory, isn't it? Always. The beauty of the text is the beauty of Christ, the Son of the Living God. The the pain of of the text is being reminded of who we really are, as Peter was being reminded. Now, did it work? Was the, was was this dual confession effective? That's the question, right? Was this dual confession did it have its 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 its, its intended result as the result? Eh, not really, did it? We're not going to get into 19 and 20. We could talk about that, but. Um, Actually, I will talk a little bit. 18, let's go back. 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, just because it's such a controversial text, upon this and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I want to talk about that one real quickly. He says, you're Peter, we just talked about that, and on this rock, and the debate all along has been, what's the rock? Some people have said Peter, Catholic Church is classically arguing Peter, and the, and the reason why they do is because uh, the word Peter in the Greek is uh, the masculine form for rock, Petra, Petros. And then he says, upon this rock, and he uses the feminine form, Petra. And people have said, well, it's so close and similar that he's obviously referring to Peter. He's going to build the church on Peter. That's a Catholic position. That's not true at all. Not even close. In fact, I think even Protestants have played around with this Petros thing way too long. We need to lay it aside. A lot of people have argued that, that there's a lot of play going on in the words there. The rock he's talking about is pretty clear in the text. It's singular, by the way. It's not plural. It's singular. When he says, upon this rock I will build my church, some people have argued the rock is Christ Himself. And I, I take it a little bit further than that. That's true. It is Christ. But I want to take it further. It's not just Christ. It's Peter's confession. The rock is the confession. The church will be built upon the confession of Christ being the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yes, it's about Christ. But it's about the confession. And the confession is brought about how? In someone's life? Because it's revealed by the Father. And as a result, people will confess that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, with all the ramifications. The rock He's talking about there is the confession of Christ being the Messiah. The Son of the living God. So he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the confession that you just made, Peter, that is not your confession at all. Ultimately, it's whose confession? It's the Father's confession of Jesus. Isn't it? Ultimately, because Peter got it from... The Father. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, that is my assembly, of, if I may flesh it out a little further, I will build my church, I will build my assembly. Who is His church? Who is His assembly? It is those who what? Yes, the Son of the living God with, again, all the ramifications of that. That are laid out elsewhere in the scriptures. And then he goes on and he says, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Could I just submit to you a different reading of the text here? Not a different reading of the text, a different understanding of the text. Too often we read this text and we say it, we think it means what? That the gates of hell shall not prevail against what? The church. I don't think it's talking about the church. It is not talking about the church at all. At best, it's talking secondarily about the church. When he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, what he's talking about is this. The gates of hell will not prevail against that confession, Peter. That declaration of truth. Tightly understood, what's he referring to, do you think? When he says the gates of hell should not prevail against it, what's he talking about, do you think? Think it through in the context of what, what is soon to come. What? Yes! Christ's death and resurrection. The gates of hell will not prevail. Satan is all out to defeat what? Christ being the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, isn't he? That's what he's all about. He's after that. His goal is for Christ to be what? For Jesus to be killed, murdered, in the grave, done, over, never to heard from again. No hope. God the Father thwarted. Salvation, no existence. And Jesus declared, you're Peter, don't forget that. On that confession, I'll build my church. And I want you to know something. Take it to the bank. I guarantee you this. The gates of hell will not prevail. And just a few days later, what happened? The gates of hell did not prevail. He rose again. He resurrected from the dead. And He walked among men as a resurrected Redeemer. He was the Messiah. And as a result, we have Matthew 28. When Jesus said, all what? All authority, all power has been given unto Me. (laughs) What does that mean? Satan has no power anymore. Death has no hold anymore. The gates of hell did not prevail. And if they didn't prevail then, the ramifications of that are for the church, right? The ramifications are that certainly if the gates of hell cannot prevail against Jesus in the grave, certainly the gates of hell cannot prevail against His people, His church, His assembly, who are assembled for the express purpose of reminding one another and worshiping that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The a stunning passage. Let's jump down. We're going to skip over 19 and 20. For sake of time, jump down to 21. From that time, what time? The confessions, right? The dual confessions. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed. goes back to explaining why he said that the gates of Hades will not prevail. And now he's going to talk about how it's not going to prevail right and he spends all his time talking about i'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and i'm going to be killed and on the third day be what raised there it is gates of hades will, gates of hell will not be prevail will not prevail against him and peter does what verse 22 peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you lord this shall never happen To you. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying, I'm the Christ. You're not. I've got a better plan. That's not going to happen. Christ is sitting there from that time on saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and and elders. And I'm going to suffer many things. And I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. No, you will not. Who's exerting power and authority? Peter. Who should be exerting authority? Christ. And he is exerting authority. He's explaining what's going to happen. He's exerting authority. He's explaining the future. He's prophesying the future. And instead, Peter stands up and says, uh uh-uh. uh, nope. That's not going to happen. Jesus, and interestingly enough, in this text it doesn't show this, in another Gospel it does. Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, but he turns and says to Peter. It's interesting, in another text, Peter's pulled him aside, Peter's rebuking him, and then Jesus, here it just says he turns and looks at the disciples, or here it just says he turns, right? um yeah he turned in another in another one of the other gospels i think it's mark he turns it says he turns and looks at all the disciples it's interesting it's like he says guys you're not speaking you're thinking the exact same thing he is that's the idea he turns and pulls them all together and after pulling them all together he says this to, to peter he turned and said to peter get behind me satan You are a hindrance to Me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about Peter's confession. When He says here in the text, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, what are the things of God that His mind is supposed to be set on? You're the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Where would He get it from? The Father. What does He say here? You're not setting your minds on the things of God. Or, to take the term, the Father. What things? That thing. Those two things. Messiah, Son of the living God. You're not setting your mind on me being the Redeemer and me being God. That's not where your mind's on. Where's your mind? Your mind's on the things of man. Which is no different than what? What the, the disciples said earlier when Jesus asked the question, who do people say I am? See, the insidious thing about what, all the, what the people were saying uh, with regard to who Jesus was, in no category was He a Redeemer, nor was He God. He was neither one. Peter is saying, you're not Redeemer. Implication, if you're not the Redeemer, you're you're not God. He forgot who Jesus was. And it's stunning and jarring, if I may submit it to you, when the first thing Jesus says to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. Why is that so jarring? Remember what we said in the beginning in the questions? Why do we sin? Why do we find ourselves in sin? Here it is. Here it is. We've forgotten that Jesus is the Redeemer and we're trying to redeem ourselves. You realize that's what sin is. Sin by very definition is self-redemption. I do this because I think it will make me Happy. I commit this sin because I think it will satisfy. I commit this sin because I think it will complete. I, th- I commit this sin because I find it really valuable to me. Does that make sense? Really? You think it's really that valuable to you? You cannot possibly think that's val- that valuable to you. That That it will actually complete you that it will actually satisfy you unless you've forgotten who Jesus is. The Messiah. The Son of the Living God. You can't cling over here and cling here too. That's the point. You can't cling to both. It's impossible. I can't cling to both. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. Can't can't do both. When I grab sin, I let go of this over here. I let go of God being, the Christ being, the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. That's I do. It's inevitable. That's why it's so jarring when Jesus turns to Peter and says, "Get behind me, Satan." It doesn't mean he was possessed by Satan. It means you're you're either acting like the and living like the your Father God or you're living like your Father Satan. If you're really saved, you're living like your previous father. That's what John says. You're living like your previous father, Satan. We don't think about that, do we? We sin for this very reason, because although we have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we find ourselves functioning all the time like He's not, but like we are. That's exactly what Peter's trying to do. Then, chapter 17, chapter 17, By the way, 24 through in chapter 16, 24 through 28 um, is a beautiful reminder that, in effect, God, Jesus, is giving to Peter. What is Jesus doing in 24 through 28? He's putting more skin on the reality of what it means to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what I said? It's not just the words. But if I believe it, there are ramifications. All the ramifications are right here. Then He told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, that is, confess, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, like you did, Peter. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, like I will, in just a little bit, die to self, deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is he talking about in, in 24 through 28 in general? He's saying, this is what it's about. This is what the confession is about of who I am. And this is what the confession is about when you deny it. It's both, isn't it? Verse 24 through part of 25, I'm sorry, through through 25, is about what it means to confess Christ. 26. And following, generally speaking, is what? What it means to not. And if we're truly confessing Christ, we're not going to be people who are 26 and 27, for example. We don't have time to go through that, but I encourage you to study that a little little closer. Chapter 17, verse 1, And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said, once again, Peter shows up in the scene, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as he was still speaking, and he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples fell on their faces terrified. We're not going to get any further than that, but let me just sum up what we just read there. they are up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured. Two others show up, Moses and Elijah. Peter opens his mouth. And it says, it's good that that we're here. I'm not going to get into all the ramifications of what that means. What is stunning in light of our study this morning is as he is saying, I'll build three tents, a bright cloud came over them, and God the Father rebuked Peter. Peter was wrong in what he was saying. I'll just leave it at that at this point. And the Father rebukes Peter and says, what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's unpack that for a second. There's something unstated first in the text that must be stated. This is my beloved son son in whom I am well pleased, which means that God the Father is saying something about Peter there. What's he saying about Peter? I'm not real pleased. You're not my beloved son. What's he saying to him? Yes! He's saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. And he's saying, You're not the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Peter, this is my beloved son. This one. And in Him I am well pleased. Why is He not well pleased with Peter? Any guess? Yes, specific. But generally, why is He just not well pleased with, with, with Peter? Well, there's, there's a problem with the elevation going on there, sure. But more importantly, Christ has not died yet Sin has not yet been atoned. Peter is still standing, what? Unatoned for. There's only one who is perfect. Correct? Only one who is perfect. So therefore, there's only one in whom he is well pleased. If you go all the way through Matthew, what do you find? The whole way through, Jesus is showing how no one is in a position of being well pleased with with finding themselves in a position of being well pleased in God's sight, that God is well pleased with them. No one is, for example, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes that we call the Beatitudes. When Jesus gives the invitation, if this is you, come forward. How many people go forward? None, why? Because none of them are that. They all need a redeemer, they all do. And once again, Peter's got his own ideas. I'm not cutting on Peter. Peter's you and me too. What does Jesus say? I'm sorry, what does the Father say? The Father says to Peter, He is my beloved Son. What? Listen to Him! Now, if you hear that statement, listen to Him, Peter, well then, you want to look around and say, listen to Him with regard to what? So you... Start reading, but Jesus came and touched him and said, rise and have no fear. Okay, listen to him, no, have no fear. Right? Okay. But really, what's he talking about there? When when the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, what's he talking about? The confession. Peter, Jesus told you, in effect, first of all, Peter, the Father, I told you, right, I revealed to you from heaven that Jesus is the Christ, the Redeemer, the Son of the living God. I told you that, and Jesus has been declaring it every step of the way, hasn't He? He's been declaring it every step of the way. And here we are, six days later, and you've all forgotten it. Totally forgotten it. This is my beloved son, Peter, just to remind you what you've already forgotten. Listen to him. From there, jump over to chapter 26. Oh, no, jump jump over to chapter 18. I'm sorry. Jump over to chapter 18. Verse 1. At that time, which is just a short period of time afterwards, at that time, the disciples, including Peter... Came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Can I just say one thing? Really? I mean, seriously? This is the Christ they're talking to, the Son of the living God. The Father has spoken to Peter, James, and John and said to them, What? Listen to him. This is what I'm well pleased in. And just a short time later, excuse me, Jesus. Who's going to be grace in the kingdom of heaven? Really? Who's going to be grace in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. I mean, isn't that what Jesus is saying? Jesus is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And listen, go over to twenty-six. <clears throat> Um, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you were also a Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it. Before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was a Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. That means he cursed. I don't know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. What's that all about? What's that all about? What's Peter trying to do? What's Peter trying to do? Think about it. Work through in the context of what we're talking about. What's Peter trying to do? Say it louder, Jim. He's trying to save himself, isn't he? Is that not just another word for redeem himself? It's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to save himself. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I don't know him. Get behind me, Satan. For your mind is not on heavenly things, but on earthly things self preservation, comfort, ease. Does that sound familiar, by the way, to anybody here? We could jump way forward, but that is a struggle, isn't it? We're going to stop there. We could jump into Acts chapter 2 where obviously Peter is transformed, right? Spirit works in his life. He stands up and preaches Christ. But then we got got in Acts chapter 11 and there's a little mess going on with Peter there and we end up with a church council in, in Acts 15. That's another train wreck, although Peter repents and life is good. The point I'm trying to make is, going all the way back to where we started. Why do we sin? And this is so important to get. Why do we sin? Why do we we oppose God? Why do we rebel against our Redeemer? It's an important question. We'd like to to make it less painful. But friends, can I just submit to you the reason why we do over and over and over again? is because we forget or deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's always the case. Always is the case. And we think we can redeem ourselves. We can save ourselves. It's a two-sided coin. Because hardwired within us, we know we need to be saved. We know we do. But on the one hand, we deny that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We don't listen to Him. Instead, we listen to our baser desires, our sinful desires, and we actually think that we can save ourselves, even if it's only temporary. We think we can save ourselves. And therein is our problem. And yet we have the storyline of the the passages we're looking at. And what do we find? We don't find Jesus saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan, and then ignoring him the rest of his life, right? Is that what happens? No. After Peter continues over and over and over again to forget that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and denies Him three times in that, that Passion time of Christ, and then Christ is resurrected because the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against him. And the confession: Jesus sits down with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and says, "Peter, do you love me?" Three times. And you know what he means by that? When he says, "Peter," in light of the context, now think about it. When he says, "Do you love me?" He's not talking about do you have warm feelings for me. He's saying, do you love me as the Christ? The Son of the living God. That's the point. You love me as the Christ. The Son of the living God. And we find at this late date, Peter saying yes three times, and Jesus saying three times, feed my sheep. Because God is a merciful God, is He not? Isn't He a stunningly merciful God? He was was taught by Jesus. He was rebuked by Jesus. He was rebuked by the Father. And He still kept failing. He still kept trying to self-redeem. He responds to Jesus' call to him there to the Sea of Galilee in repentance, doesn't he? I love you. And again, we've played too many many games, I think, with the different types of love there. The point is, I love you. I love you as my Redeemer. I love you as my Savior. I love you as the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him three times, and there's only one other thing left. If that's true, then this. If that's true, then this. Leave my sheep. Care for my lamb. Who's the lamb? Who's the sheep? Well, go back to the confession, right? Flesh of blood hasn't told you this? And then you're Peter? Upon this rock, I will build my church, my assembly. On what? On the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so in effect, what Jesus is saying to Peter is this, when He says, feed my sheep three times, in effect what He's saying is, remind my sheep what? That I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Remind them of that. And not just those words, remind them of that and all of its ramifications. Such as we saw in 24-28. through All of its ramifications. Feed my sheep. And by the way, could I just say this? That call to feed my sheep that God gave Peter is not just for Peter. And that becomes really clear as we work our way through the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, and then as the rest of the apostles go out, And as the rest of those who get saved under the apostles' ministry go out, and what is happening? People are doing what? They're feeding sheep. Aren't they? They're feeding sheep. What are they feeding them? I want to remind you that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and these are the ramifications of Him being the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what I believe. This is what is true. It's been revealed from heaven been revealed from the Father. And it's life transforming. Oh, we struggle with sin, don't we? My goodness, we struggle with sin. You know what that means I need? Could I sum it up real simply? When Peter confessed Christ and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you know what Peter was declaring? He was declaring the Gospel. That's all it was. He was declaring the Gospel. And it has ramifications that ripple throughout our entire lives. What I need more than anything else is to be reminded of that. I need that much more than I need someone to fix a problem I have. You realize that? Sometimes I get really frustrated with my mom. (laughs) Sometimes she wears me out. You know what? Sometimes my wife wears me out. Sometimes I wear my wife out. Sometimes I wear my mom out. You know what? In those situations, I don't need people primarily to come and tell me how to handle situations with my wife my mom better. I don't need people to primarily tell, or my wife or my mom don't need people primarily to tell, tell them how to deal with me better. You know what I need? You know what my mom needs? You know what my wife needs? To be reminded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in light of that, I need to listen to Him. And bathe my life in the truth of Jesus, my Redeemer. And in the midst of that, the Spirit's going to work in my life, and what's going to happen? I'm going to be able to glorify God in those things, aren't I? I'm going to serve Christ in the events of my life. But we just keep forgetting that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. So let us, as we go from here into communion, and then sing some songs, and then go from this service, Remember, who Jesus is, remember who we are. He is Christ, we're not. He is the Son of the living God, we're not. And what does that mean in our lives? And that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us because, frankly, we are people who really like self-redemption. We don't even realize that when we're living that way it's like we are Satan. We find it very comfortable to put our minds on earthly things not in heavenly things. And we do so because we forget the truth of the confession that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us. Help us firstly to remember, and then in light of remembering, help us to feed Your sheep. Because we know the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, did not prevail against You. You rose again. And because you rose again, certainly the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church, your assembly, your assembled ones who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So work in us. Open our eyes to see. Help us to be amazed with your love and your mercy and your grace. In your name I pray. Amen.